We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. This morning, what I'd like to do is, uh, because we finished our uh, series in spiritual disciplines, uh, three three week series uh, last week, I'd like to shift to something else, and it's a Bible study mm, tool, we'll say, methodology. And so, if you have your thinking cap today, you're going to want to put it on. All right, uh, and I'm talking about your literary grammatical. Uh, detailed study thinking cap, okay? Um, these notes that I am looking at here are available on the website. I did not print them out for you all. Uh, I wanted, I was thinking about how to do this, and I thought, well, I don't know if I'm, I'm not going to, like, make it a worksheet or something like that. So uh, we'll just see how it goes here. Um, <clears throat> there are a number of techniques that you can use when you're studying the Bible. Now, we're talking about one of those spiritual disciplines. We talked about reading, meditating, uh, praying through the Scripture, and that sort of thing. But uh, today, it's study and detailed study. And I encourage you to do this uh, sometime. Um, One of the ways that I started out using, you know, probably 25 years ago now was uh, diagramming, not sentence diagramming, mind you, uh, but um, flow or phrase or block diagramming, which is just an indented version of the um, text, you know, so you can kind of look at, stand back and look at it and see the hierarchical relationships between this section of the text and that section and see the flow of the narrative and that sort of thing. Um, But that's one tool. I can show you how to do that sometime. But the one I wanted to introduce today in part and in a benefit to one of our brothers who's uh, getting an assignment to do this uh, in his uh, work with me is uh, to study the logical relationships that you can see between clauses in Scripture. And I think Josh knows a little bit about this. I should have him come up and teach this. Uh, Maybe, in fact, you could have your Bible open to Philippians where you were, and if you remember any examples of these relationships that I'm going to share, then you could uh, pipe in with that example or two uh, or three or four. Um, But what we're doing here is we're trying to understand uh, the text of Scripture at a little bit of a higher level that is not just clause by clause or sentence by sentence or phrase by phrase, but the key thing is the relationships between the, the, the text, the sentences, the phrases, the clauses, and the sentences. And I've said this before, and uh, I'll say it again now, that the, one of the things that is important to notice in your scripture reading are the smallest words in English, but, and, for, if, therefore, is not such a small word, so, as, like, um, and so on and so forth. When, where, 
of course, those kind of basic questions. Those small words are essential for us when we're trying to understand uh, the scriptures. And I want to encourage you to pay close attention to them, not just gloss over them. Because the real, the real kind of power in, in understanding the meaning of scripture is not just understand the meaning of this phrase and this phrase and this phrase just sequentially in order, but to understand them in their relationships with one another how they support each other, uh, how they uh, argue for or against or, um, you know, the results, purposes, intended results, outcomes, all those things, how they connect to one another. And when you can grasp a hold of that, then you're really starting to get an understanding of the real meaning of the text of Scripture. Meaning is not, it is, it is in words, but it's not only in words. It's in combinations of words, it's in phrases, uh, it's in sentences, it's in paragraphs, critical. Uh, and I, you would say, well, you'd have to say that because context is so important in Scripture, right? So the context of a sentence, can you can take a sentence out of context. If you just remove one of those connective words like for or but or uh, therefore or whatever, you can change the entire meaning by doing that. So... We must not do that. So let me give you an example of one uh, of these kinds of relationships that's fairly uh, easy, and uh, that was in Haggai 2, where we were studying yesterday. It's at the end of the chapter in Haggai 2, and... um, First, an example, then kind of go back to an overall explanation of this approach or this tool, if you will. In Haggai 2.21, let me read that. It says, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake heaven and earth. I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots. And those who ride in them, the horses and their riders, shall come down, everyone by the sword of his brother. So I'm using this as a way to illustrate this kind of relationship between clauses. What is the relationship here? Here what we're doing is asking the question and then answering it. What's the relationship between I will shake heaven and earth, I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms, I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms, I will overthrow the chariots? What is the relationship between those statements, okay? And this is not a hard one. This is too easy, in fact. You kind of feel like there's a trick question here. But what we, as we categorize the relationship of these phrases to one another, this is the categorization they fall under. They are a series of statements parallel to one another, okay? A simple series. That's one of the simplest that you can... um, that you'll see in your study. It's just a series. Now, let me ask this. With a series, do you think that it would change the meaning if I swapped around the order of these uh, phrases? Like if I decided to translate them in a different order? Would it really change the meaning of what God is saying? Now, you might have an, in, you might have an intuitive feeling like, hmm, I shouldn't be swapping around the order of God's Word. True. But... It is a human language that God used to communicate to us. 
And my, my belief is that we could move these around and the meaning would be exactly the same. Now, there are other series that aren't so. They aren't like that. And so for that example, let's go to uh, Mark 4.28. This would be kind of a sub uh, subspecies, if you will, of a series a relationship of phrases or clauses. And uh, don't make me technically define the difference between a phrase and a clause right now. Uh, I can do that, but uh, somebody with more grammar can uh, come up with a concise definition for us. Uh, Mark 4.28, it says... Uh, for the earth, well, let me back up. He says, the Lord says, And the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground and should sleep by night and rise by day, and the seed should sprout and grow. He himself does not know how. Isn't that true? For the earth yields crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, after that the full grain in the head. Okay, so the relationship of, the, of this sequence here of little phrases is first the blade, then the head, and after that the full grain in the head. There is a series there, but it's a progressive series. Are you with me? Can I swap the order of these? No, because there's a first, second, third. Okay? The same thing happens in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22. If you look there, 1 Corinthians 15, 22. Now, we're just introducing the, the different possible relationships between phrases and clauses and sentences and so on here. We have to kind of then figure out a way to use this information as we study the Scripture together. In 1 Corinthians 15, 22, the Bible says this, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order. There's a clue that we're going to have an ordered list here. Christ the first fruits. Afterward, those who are Christ that is coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. And I've, I've made the uh, statement in my teaching on this passage that we have an order of three resurrections here. We have Christ first. We have those who are Christ that is coming and then the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. And I think they are, that last one is a little bit oblique, but it is referring to a third resurrection. So Christ is first, then his at his coming, so at the rapture, and then right before the millennial kingdom, the first resurrection, and then the second resurrection, as it's called in Revelation, which if you count Jesus' resurrection would be the third, right? But that's a special case, so we're not counting that one as first or second. So you have this ordered series here. It's like um, the word here in its own, uh, I can't remember the Greek word, takma or something like that, but it's, a, it's a, like a ranked ordering, like troops in a, in a formation, one group and then the other group and then the other after that. And you can't change the order of these and have the meaning be the same. Christ, the first fruits, couldn't be third in the list because he's first, <laughs> And uh, then comes the end, can't be second in the list because the end comes after, <laughs> yeah, it comes at the end. So this is a series in progression, we would call it. Now, this, uh, I was introduced to all of this by a, um, there's a, well, 
school, but also a website uh, that advances the tool called Arcing, Arcing, A-R-C-I-N-G. And they use the, they lay out the text of Scripture either uh, horizontally or vertically, and then they draw arcs or, I, I don't like the arcs so much, but, you know, a little uh, engineer straight, you know, vertical and horizontal lines with 90-degree angles. You get the idea. But uh, you, you box kind of the, the different phrases in, and then you say a little letter next to them to indicate what the relationship between them is. So if you have an arc from one statement to the other, you label that with an S, that means these are in series with one another. If you label it with a, an SP, then a, and that would be a series progress, or a progression series. Okay? And you can do this with every phrase, every sentence, every paragraph, and whole books of the Bible. Yes? You don't believe me, huh? Ask Josh, he'll tell you. Okay, now this is very difficult work for the noodle, all right, to figure out the relationships. But even if you can't quite figure them out, as I have said before, it is a good exercise to spend time in the Bible thinking about the scriptures. And you might scratch your head and say, Pastor, what is the relationship between these two clauses? And I might say, oh, it's this. Or I might say, I'll scratch my head with you because it's a little tough to figure out. You know, it's not so easy. So we have the first kind of subspecies here of of logical relationships is series and progressive series. But then there are a bunch of others. And the um, arcing instructional course that I took, this is some time ago, has a list of 18 of these different relationships. Okay, don't get lost yet. Engage your minds with me, all right? This is important for thinking about when you're, it'll help your reading, even if you don't use it in terms of actually diagramming out the text. Um, 18 of these, and I found some of them to be a little confusing or a little repetitive or redundant. So what I did is I took them and I reduced them to a list of 15 instead of 18. So I've made the task a little simpler. And uh, on the handout that I've created, uh, I've shown this and also some other um, kind of adaptations that I've made uh, to make it easier to understand. So let's go through a bunch more examples of this, and you'll see uh, how these work. So the next one on our list after a series or a progression series is what's called an alternative an alternative, two phrases that are related to each other as alternatives. So look at Matthew eleven, three. In Matthew 11, the chapter opens with John the Baptist in prison, and uh, he is having uh, a bout of very bad prison depression, we'll call it. And in prison, he uh, sends messengers to Jesus and says to him, he, and says to him, are you the coming one or do we look for another? Okay, so the relationship between those two phrases is those are alternative answers, alternative outcomes. The whole thing is a question, uh, and Jesus gives an answer to it later. We'll see about a Q&A uh, type of relationship in a moment, but th- these are two alternatives. Are you following me? So... 
What is the relationship of those two clauses? They're alternatives to one another. And in the alternative kind of category, we put the relationships between clauses where the alternatives are equal, like one's not bad and the other's good. You know what I mean? John doesn't know. He's not kind of biasing the question you know, by saying this alternative is bad and this alternative is good. He just wants to know which it is. Okay. Um, there's another one. Let me see if I can find it here. Uh, that's called negative positive. And uh, you can write NP if you want to, or you can put a plus sign and a minus sign. And sometimes the plus and the minus are reversed. The order of them is first the negative, then the positive. So look at Ephesians 5 for this one. Ephesians 5, 17. I know some of you are, are uh, maybe some online as well, are starting at this point to check out. Don't check out, okay? Check in. <laughs> because this will help you understand the Bible better. Ephesians 5.17, it says, Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, it might seem obvious to you when you read it, but this is giving an alternative situation, but with a value judgment attached to it. So we don't call it merely alternative, but we call it negative positive. Don't be unwise. Okay? Now, that's also a command, but... Just set that aside for the moment. Don't be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. When you, set the, when you just think of those things separately, they have their, their, their power. But when you put them together and you realize the Apostle Paul is saying, don't be unwise, but rather in place of being unwise, or if you want to be wise, in other words, understand God's will. If you don't understand God's will, then what? You're unwise. You're foolish. Okay, so the word but there that connects the two clauses is a clue that, this is Ephesians 5.17, is the clue that you have a contrastive or negative positive relationship here between the clauses. Okay, still with me? All right, so uh, I'm getting myself out of order in my notes, but that's helpful because I'm learning a better way to uh, go through these with you. So we've done f- really three or four of these now. Let's do another one. Let's go to Matthew 5, 6. I'm going to have somebody read that out nice and loud for us. Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 6. As you go there, you probably already recognize that this is in the Sermon on the Mount in the very beginning of it. Somebody read Matthew 5, verse 6. Drew, go ahead. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. All right, so if you couldn't hear that online, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It says, for they shall be filled. All right, this relationship, well, first of all, we have to know what are, the, what are the clauses that we're looking at or what are the segments of the text that we're looking at. The first one is, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for what? 
they will be filled. Okay, so we have two, two pieces of text connected by this little connective word for, right? If you got rid of that word, let's see, could you get rid of that word? shouldn't get rid of that word because it's in the original text. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, period. They shall be filled, period. Yeah, that's okay. I wouldn't translate it like that, though, because the word for is giving you what's called the ground of the blessing. Why is it that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are blessed? God's going to see to it that they receive the blessing of being filled. Make sense? It's not just a blessing in a vacuum. That, that, you, know, you just have a nice feeling when you hunger and thirst for righteousness. No, you have a feeling of spiritual happiness, of contentment in the Lord, because you know, because ground, you know that you will be filled. You with me? So I could pause here and just ask by way of application, are you blessed that way? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Because if you do, then you will be filled. You will be filled. Okay? And that's where the blessing comes from. So this is the relationship between two segments of text or phrases or clauses that is called the ground relationship. So you may... In your diagram, you may have, uh, you know, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The next line you have, for they shall be filled. And you write a little, draw a little arc between them and you put G on the side there and say this is the ground of this statement. Now, you, it'd probably be better to, like, do it like this. What's, what is this, the, the, what's the blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness? Well, in my, in my notes, what I've done is I've said, and I, I think they make this a little unclear in the Bible arcing um, curriculum. I've laid out a number of kind of top-level f- sentences or phrases or clauses that you could have. And, and these just have generic names like a statement or a proposition or an action or an idea or an imperative. Okay, And so I would say, um, for instance, in this Matthew 5, that you have a proposition or a statement with its ground. So you could say S-G, statement and its ground. Okay. Now, if you look at Matthew chapter 5 again, what else do you notice as you... If you kind of zoom out just a little bit and look at a bigger section of text, what relationship between clauses do we have when we zoom out a little bit? We're looking, you know, we're looking at verse 6 to start, but let's zoom out and look at 5 and 7 and 4 and 8 and 3 and 9. What are the relationship of all those to one another? It's one we've already gone over. Somebody? That's a series. Blessed, 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 blessed. So you have a series. So you have, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. So that's a statement in the ground. The next one is a statement. Well, let's look at it. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. It's the exact same structure, different content. So you have another statement in the ground, and another statement in the ground, and another statement in the ground. And then you can put an over 
arching arc over all of those and say, there is a series of statements and grounds that the Lord has made. Okay, What's that? It's an array, a list, a queue, a data structure. <laughs> Computer uh, language here. It's an array. Um, yeah, actually, an array is ordered, isn't it? An unordered list. Hmm. Very fascinating. Okay, so you can have statements, propositions, you can have actions, you can have ideas, you can have imperatives, and maybe there are others, but um, I wanted to kind of, I, I, I broke this down in my notes here this way because there are kind of top-level statements, and then there are sub-statements or coordinating or, or uh, coordinating uh, clauses or subordinating clauses that relate to those main statements, okay? This is how language communicates meaning. Uh, let's look at another simple one, Matthew 8.24. We happen to be happily in Matthew. Matthew 8.24. It says... Uh, verse 23, actually, when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him. And suddenly, a great tempest arose on the sea, notice this phrase, so that the boat was covered with the waves. But he was asleep. The focus here is, so that the boat was covered with the waves. And uh, so you'd have the great tempest arising, and then you'd Connect that with the next one so that the boat was covered with the waves. That's the result of the tempest. Okay? It's a result clause. That's all. Okay? A result. That's just stating like a fact. Here's something happened, and then as a result of that, something else happened. You with me, Ann? She's with me, all right. She's, she's ahead of us all, probably. Yeah. All right, that's the result. The result clause explains what in fact occurred after the main statement. So this is an actual result. But then there's a different kind of result, which is called a purpose clause or a purpose relationship. And the purpose explains the goal or not the actual result, but the intended result. Okay. So listen to this. Now this I say lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. This is the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 2. Uh, what's he saying in Colossians 2? He's warning them against this false wisdom and worldly asceticism and approaches that try to uh, deal with the lusts of the flesh, but without effect. Colossians 2, uh, verse uh, 4 it says, now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. And then he goes on down, verse 8, Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Okay, So somebody might try to deceive you with persuasive words and say, you need something more than Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying, no, in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. You are complete in him. 
who is the head of all principality and power. And so what he's saying is, I'm writing this, and we wish the actual result would always be that people would be uh, steadfast and not persuaded by empty doctrine. But that's not always the case, but that's his intention. Okay, that's the purpose for which he's writing. Lest is a key word that you want to pay attention to. Lest is like this. It means so that not. So it's like so that, but it's a negative, so that not. Okay, so the purpose clause explains the goal of the main statement, but that goal may not actually be met. Okay, uh, It's not exactly the same, but it's like when the Scripture says, this is the will of God, even your sanctification. Well, is it the will of God that's actually going to occur? You know, the decreed will of God, or is it the will of God in terms of His desired will? Which one is it? In that case, this is the will of God, even your sanctification. Anybody? It's his desired will. It may or may not happen in your life, depending on your level of, let's say, cooperation with God and with his work in your life. It's God's will for you to be sanctified. We can say that, period. God's decree may include that you fall into a period of unsanctified behavior, for whatever reason that he sees fit to allow that to happen, whatever blameworthy liability you have in that as well. Okay, So um, purpose is what's the intended result, intended outcome. Um, Okay, let's look at another one. We're still plowing through our 15 different possible combinations here of relationships. We're going to look at the next one as conditional. Conditional. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verse number 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. Now, I've omitted the first word of verse 13, which is but, because that's going to connect this one, this verse back to the previous one, but we're not trying to look at that for now. We're just looking at the if statement. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. Okay, If you separate that up and chop it up and look at it in, uh, uh, without the if and without the then, guess what you have? Heresy. (laughs) If you get rid of the if and the then, but there is no resurrection of the dead. Christ is not risen. Ooh, that doesn't sound right. (laughs) That's because you've omitted the important words if and then. Okay, the then is only true if the if is true, right? We understand that intuitively, but when you're studying it, If you put those phrases out, you put a little line or arc between the two, and you can say, if, you know, if slash th. It's an if-then statement. We understand that the if is actually not true in Paul's mind. He's only saying it for sake of argument against those in Corinth who are preaching against the resurrection of the dead. Okay, so that's a conditional 
relationship between the clauses. Quite easy if you see the if. Uh, you don't always see the then, however. Sometimes it's omitted. You could read it this way. If Christ is not risen, well, that's the next verse. And if Christ is not risen, comma, our preaching is empty. You'll see that often in the Bible where the word then is omitted, but it's there implied. Okay, So when I'm doing my diagramming of the text, I'll put if Christ is not risen, brackets, then brackets, the brackets indicating I supplied that just for the clarity of my own thinking, that this is a then clause, and then I write the rest of it. You with me? So I'm not adding to the text. I'm just putting what the meaning that's built in there already is implied. Because again, human language does that. I could be preaching up there later this morning, and I I start to say a sentence, and I stop mid-sentence. And you all know what the completion of that sentence is. And then I just go on to the next thing because I know you know what I'm talking about, right? So uh, the same thing in the scripture sometimes. You know, Paul will do things like that or other writers as well. All right, so we have a number of others. Let me just go through them here quickly. We have the temporal relationship of clauses. Colossians 3, 6 and 7 says, Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. Okay, You walked that way when you lived in them. So the when you lived in them, that's a temporal clause, a temporal relationship. Uh, here's another one. It's, uh, you could indicate it with the letter L for location. In Ruth 1.17, it says... Where you die, I will die. Okay? So it's important to the meaning of it because it's not just saying, Ruth is not just saying, I will die. She's saying where she's going to die. And that is significant because it indicates a relationship between Ruth and Naomi. I will die where you die. In other words, I and you are joined at the shoulders here, okay? We're going to be together. I'm not going to abandon you. So the location is an important concept. You could reverse the clauses as well. I will die where you die. means the same thing, okay, in this case. Um, all right, we've got a couple more here. The next one is the means category. Uh, of relationship between clauses. Acts 14, 17. He did not leave himself without witness in that he did good. Gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. So here, when you, if you were to read this, he did not leave himself without witness. You might ask yourself, how did he do that? How did he not leave himself without a witness? And the answer to the how is the means by which he gave witness. He did good. He did good to all humanity. Okay? That's the means by which God did this. Okay? Now, that's different than the word, as I understand it, that's different than the word manner. Okay? Sometimes we use means and manner interchangeably. Like you might say, in what manner did God show his testimony. Well, he did good to us. I understand that. 
uh, approach or that use of the word manner. But when I use the word manner in my listing here of these logical relationships, I'm thinking more of manner as in demeanor. Jesus in Mark 3, 5 comes in uh, to the synagogue and it says, and when he had looked around at them with anger, that's the demeanor that he looked. That's not a means. That's not the means by which he looked around. That would be like when he looked around at them with uh, you know, uh, binoculars or something. That would be the means that he used to look at them. Here it is, he looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts. So this is describing the manner of the Lord's demeanor in looking at them. Okay, So that's the difference between means and manner, but both of those are categories that we might find as we read the scriptures. Okay, And uh, another one is kind of a general one. It's called the explanation relationship. Okay, you have an idea, a statement, and then you have the explanation for it. For example, Paul says, For I know that in me dwells no good thing. But actually, I skipped a part, didn't I? What part did I skip? That's right. So, for I know that in me, parentheses, that is, in my flesh, dwells no good thing. That phrase that's in parentheses is the explanatory phrase that explains what he means by when he says that I know that in me. What part of me is he talking about? He's talking about the flesh part of me, the sinful nature part of me. Okay, That's the explanation. Or let's look at another example. This one's in Romans 10.6. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. Okay, I picked both of these to use the key, key phrase, that is. That is to bring Christ down from above explains what he's talking about. Well, who, who will ascend into heaven? Now, that's a bit of a difficult text to understand, connecting back to the Old Testament quotation that Paul is using. But in any case, it's trying to explain to us that last phrase. Two more. Okay, hang with me just a couple more minutes. Uh, there's often in the Bible a pattern of question and answer. Okay? Uh, there are real questions and rhetorical questions. Okay? Rhetorical question really is making a statement or a, uh, asserting a fact. For example, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Question. What's the answer? <laughs> Certainly not. Me genoita. It must not be. Okay, so a question and answer. And what, what's the point of the point of a question and an answer is to engage the audience, the reader, in the in the kind of back and forth. Shall we continue in sin? What he's doing is really saying, you know, there are people out there that are going to argue the doctrine of grace allows us to continue in sin that grace may abound. Wrong. If that's what you think, you've totally misunderstood the doctrine of grace. God's grace teaches us that, what? Denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly and righteously and, uh, what's the third one? Soberly, righteously, and uh, godly in this present age, okay? Very good. 
Um, here's another one uh, in Romans 4. For what does the Scripture say? So Paul is saying, okay, what about justification? What does the Scripture say? It says this, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So man, if you're a Pharisee sitting there reading Paul in Romans 4, and he's arguing for justification by faith at the end of chapter 3, which he does, hammers. Okay, Everybody's a sinner. Jew, Greek, doesn't matter. Green or blue or whatever your color is, you're a sinner. But we're saved by grace through faith. And then he appeals to the person, well, what does the Scripture say? The Pharisee's sitting there scratching his head. Hmm. Paul says, I'll tell you what it says. Look at Genesis 15, 6. It says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Did Abraham have to get circumcised to get accounted righteous? No. Did he have to keep the law? No. Did he have to keep Sabbath? Did he have to you know, go to the synagogue? Did he have to keep the, all the minutiae of your Pharisaical law code? No, 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 no. He was justified by faith. That's a pretty powerful question and answer, isn't it? Yeah. Finally, there is the concessive relationship between clauses. And I've got a couple examples here. One is in James chapter 3 and verse number 4. James chapter 3 and verse number 4. It says this, um, talking about the tongue being small and having a large effect. Look also at the ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. The idea is that the although word is a concession uh, of something that seems opposite of the conclusion. Okay? Here you have a boat, an aircraft carrier, 30-foot waves, huge winds, or maybe a sailboat would be more appropriate for the time with a sail hoisted up on it. All this big stuff, big wind, big boat, big waves, and what do you have? A little rudder that turns it wherever it wants to go. It seems counterintuitive. Although all this huge stuff, this little thing does the job. Although you have a 2,000-pound, you know, 18-hand high horse, you have this little bit that you put in its mouth and you steer the thing with the reins. Weird, isn't it? Although big, small makes, uh, you know, does the guiding, does the directing, does the steering work. That's what a concessive relationship is. Here's another one, very important. He counted me faithful, putting me into ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. Do you put persecutors, blasphemers, and insolent men into ministry? Not generally. <laughs> when they're saved when they're transformed, when they're called by God, you put formerly blaspheming, insolent persecutors into ministry. So although the world might look at somebody like that and say, look, no way, Jose, right? They're, they're out. But with God's grace and power, 
that person, although all that bad stuff was true, now he's counted me faithful putting into ministry. Putting into the ministry seems like the opposite to do to a person who was formerly a blasphemer. Indeed. But that's the relationship of the concession, a concessive relationship. Although we were sinners, Christ died for us. Why would he do that? Seems like for bad people, you just let them be bad. Just dump them. So the concessive relationship is very powerful. Very powerful idea. So um, I'll see what I can do this week to uh, cook up uh, an exercise for us to do next time, as uh, God wills, uh, to look at these. But uh, very helpful, very challenging to, uh, to study the Scripture with this level of detail. So maybe I should have Josh tell us, uh, give us a, a diagram that he did. That would be an interesting exercise. We can critique it. Yeah, a beginner's, beginner's version and an intermediate version and an advanced version. <laughs> all right. You'll have this, this right here. All, all of them are right here on this page. That's it, 15 of them. It's on the website, and I can print it for you next time if we do a little homework exercise. Oh, you know what? Maybe I forgot to link it on there. I'll go fix that. Yeah, sorry. All right. Yeah. I think it I think it's in there. You just don't know the link to it. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you for the scriptures and thank you for giving us some tools, methods, means to systematically study the word and think through how you've communicated truth to us. I pray that some one or more here will get excited about this, try to sit down and think through it or take that arcing course or do some of these exercises that we'll come up with and really be benefited in their uh, relationship to your word. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.